You can be seated, and if you had your Bibles uh, open, Psalm 139, that's where we'll be today. Most of it will be on the screen, but if you want to follow along and make notes uh, in the Bible you brought with you, you are welcome uh, to do that. Today wraps up our look at some of uh, the most favorite Psalms that are in the Scriptures. Um, and we end on Psalm 139, and then next week we will uh, welcome our first guest preacher for the month of August. Uh, so it's good uh, for me to have a break. It's good for you to have a break from hearing me. Uh, and so we'll all work out, and we will uh, pick up with a new study in September after we uh, spend August with some church planners and missionaries that are coming in. Henry Nowen writes in his book, You Are the Beloved. Over the years, he says, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I am rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I am a nobody. My dark side says I am no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Now, his reflections fit well with Psalm 139 because David's prayer in Psalm 139 is a call to remember. To remember that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and yet his perfect knowledge and perfect power doesn't lead him to destroy us. Rather, in grace, he bends low. And he leverages his knowledge of and power over all things to redeem and restore us, to call us beloved, and to put his spirit in us so that we would call out to him, Abba, Father. Let's pray. God, we are grateful. We are grateful that the core truth of our existence, as now it writes, is that we are called beloved. Oh, how often we don't think that's true of us. It's true maybe of the person to our right and to our left. It's true maybe for the one who we perceive as being more blessed than us or the one that we perceive as suffering more than us. But we often struggle to remember that you call us the beloved. And you call us the beloved because you chose to love us. Our hearts are overwhelmed with that truth. The spirit in us, the spirit that you placed in us, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead testifies to the fact that we have been called beloved. And so God, as we consider David's meditation in Psalm 139, will we push aside self-rejection? Will we push aside the traps of success and popularity and power? And will we rest in the fact, God, that you know us intimately? You know us intimately and you choose to love us knowing the fullness of who we are. Would that be what centers and anchors our hearts this morning? In Christ's name, amen. Psalm 39 is 24 verses. That's why we only read a section of it this morning. Uh, but those 24 verses are broken up into uh, four six-verse stanzas. And so this morning, we're going to reject our Baptist roots just for a minute and not just look at the first and third verse. We're going to look at all of them, all four. We're going to go all four stanzas right down the line. 
And we open with Psalm 139, 1 and 6, because each of these verse, these sections, these stanzas of verses build off of one another to bring us to the conclusion that David arrives at at the end of the psalm. The opening stanza centers on the omniscience or the all-knowingness of God. David opens by writing, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who had called David to be king through the prophet Samuel, is a God who is intimately involved in the life of his people. Notice, David, in mentioning the omniscience or the all-knowingness of God, mentions nothing of history or present geopolitical or socioeconomic goings-on when he speaks of what God knows. David instead shows us the intimate knowledge God has of us personally. From our sitting and standing, to going out and coming in, to thoughts not spoken and words as yet unformed, God knows them all. Brings to mind the words of Jesus who addressing his fearful disciples says in Matthew 10, 29 through 31, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I don't know if you've ever tried to count the hair on your head or the hair on your arm or on your legs or wherever you have hair. If you've ever tried to count it, you don't get very far before you give up because there is a lot of hair on your head. Some of you have gone into early retreat with your hair. It's getting easier to count. Some of you are holding on to it. But the reality is there's a density to the knowledge God has of us. It's not just a surface level knowledge. It's an intimate awareness at any one point in history of where everyone ever created is and what they're doing. If you think about that long enough, it makes your head start to hurt. I think back to the scene uh, in Bruce Almighty when Jim Carrey asks, he prays, he's frustrated with God, and God says, well, then you be me for a while. And he gets all these prayers start to come in. And it's just this loud racket of noise, prayers from all over the world arriving. And it is too much for him. He begins to understand, and if you watch it, there's a glimpse there of just how much bigger and stronger and greater God is than us. Because he hears it all and he's not overwhelmed. He sees everywhere you go and everything you do. And he's not once lost track of any of us. His record in caring for his people is perfect. And David says, bring me great joy. Not just that God would know the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning, but that he would know me this way. But we know, we know, and what makes some of this hard to grasp, our mind, grasp in our minds and in our hearts what leads us toward self-rejection is this. We know where we've allowed ourselves to go. We know the things we've allowed ourselves to see. There are numerous nights we've made our bed with sin. We are aware of the thoughts that stay in our hearts and minds and the words that have escaped our mouths, inflicting untold damage to others and ourselves. Given this knowledge, and it is surface level compared to God's knowledge of us, what would we expect his response to be to us? 
What do we expect his primary actions toward us to be motivated by? Anger? Rejection? Dismay? Contempt? David, in verses 5 and 6, especially in verse 5, says it's none of those. That God moves towards us with, a, with compassion and a desire to bless. David uses the imagery of being hemmed in and having God's hand laid on us. Those are both pictures of God's protection and blessing. Being hemmed in carries with it the idea of being surrounded closely. The NIV Study Bible captures this sentiment well when it says, David sees the Lord's knowledge as a blanket of security. It surrounds and guards him. David says, you know all these things, and yet you're before me and behind me. You, your presence, and your knowledge of my life is a blanket of comfort. But then he goes on to say that your hand is laid on me. We would think, knowing all we know of ourselves, that the laying on of hands in this instance is the laying on of hands of anger, the hands of punishment, the hands of discipline. That is not what David has in view here, when David says, you lay your hand upon me, is often associated with blessing. If you think back to Genesis 48, 14 through 17, where the sons of Israel are being blessed in Egypt before Jacob dies, he lays his hands on them. But there's a second part to this. Laying on of hands was also seen as a means of providing reassurance through the gentleness of the touch. This knowledge is, as David says, too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. David says, you've laid your hand on me, not only for blessing, but for reassurance. Here's the deal. David lived before the cross. David knew something of the character and nature of God because of the stories he had heard of the creation and the calling out of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the establishment of the nation of Israel as they were led out of Egypt by the, in the Exodus and established in the Promised Land. He knew something of how God pursued and cared for his people. How much more do we know the level of pursuit and care and desire to redeem in God's heart and character do we know this side of the cross? Because the hands that are laid on you are not closed fists. They are open hands with nail holes in them. They are the open, nail-pierced hands of Jesus that are laid on you. And if the hands of Jesus are laid on you, then punishment will not fall on you. Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have a fuller picture of what David was anticipating here. And if you think about it, if you think about the gentleness of God's touch, knowing all you know about yourself, you find yourself repeating with David in praise, all this is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it because we can't understand this type of love and forgiveness. And if you don't believe me, the best way to understand how you're embracing Psalm 139, 1 through 6 is this. How do you respond when sinned against? The litmus test for Psalm 139, 1 through 6, not only in our minds and our heart's ability to grasp it, we can read it and understand it, but part of how we know that we're really attaining the truth that is meant to settle and give us a sense of knowing that we're called beloved is by watching how we respond when we are sinned against. 
And David says, God, you, you know, and yet you protect me. When I should be left to my own devices. And God, you forgive me even when I feel like I've passed the point of forgiveness. And you've laid your hand on me not only to bless me, but to reassure me that you're there with me. What good news David unpacks in the first six verses. My prayer for us is that we would be people then who model that forgiveness well. That we pursue people who have sinned against us in the same way that God pursues us. Now that's not to say that forgiveness means a reestablishment of a relationship or former levels of trust are restored or even the ability to be in the presence of someone. That does, forgiveness doesn't mean that all that then has to be put back together. But what forgiveness means, if we're following David's logic here in the first six verses, what forgiveness means is this, is even if the relationship is broken, and even if there is no way to be rejoined after the sin is committed, am I praying for God to protect them and God to bless them? Or do we limit God's forgiveness? That's what we have to wrestle with in Psalm 139, 1 through 6. And then David moves on in the next stanza in verses 7 through 12 and says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. David moves from God's omniscience to his omnipresence, or his all-presentness. Given the in-depth knowledge that God has of us, perhaps our first inclination inherited from our first parents is to run and hide. We consider Psalm 139, 1 through 6 as good news, but the longer we sit with understanding all that God knows of us, perhaps we pick up on our first parents' inclination to run and to hide. And David says, if that's true, it will do you no good because you're never going to arrive at a place where God is not. If we go up to the heavens or down to Sheol, the grave, he is there. If we go as far east as possible towards the rising sun, he is there. If we go as far west as possible, out over the sea, he will find us and we will find him already there. David uses the extremes of heaven and Sheol and east and west. These use of the extremes communicates that not only is God found there, but if God is found in the extremes, he is found every place in between. David says, so where are you going to go to escape him? And so on the one hand, we think, well, where are we going to go to escape him because we don't like the feel of God's gaze on us because we trust to believe that he sees us and would love and redeem us. On the other hand, it's good news because sometimes as we go, we find ourselves where we never intended to go and we find comfort in knowing that there's nowhere, nowhere you can arrive where God is not with you. So David says, this is great comfort to me but then near the end he mentions the reality of darkness the friend of evil and the cover of exercise for all sorts of evil actions in the scriptures darkness is associated with evil and evil practices and immorality 
David says, even if I go where it's dark, meaning perhaps where the sun has set, because it was dangerous to travel in the dark in those days. There were no off-ramps on the highway. There were no well-lit motels to stay in. You had to be careful. And so David, on one hand, is saying, even if I'm between where I'm going, you're with me. That there's no darkness so thick that I would walk through that you won't be with me. Think about what David writes in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even the darkness of death is as light to God. But it's also meant to communicate there's no moral evil so bad, there's no evil so thick around a person that God cannot get to them in saving grace. So it says, even if you want to go, even if you want to pile sin on sin on top of yourself to hide from the gaze of God, if God wants you, God will have you, and you cannot escape him. And we all have stories. When we pursued the darkness, tried our best to hide, and the slightest pinprick of light entered our hearts, and we realized that God was there to redeem us. David says, where would I go? What would I do? Then I'll be studying Bible notes. Darkness, whether physical or moral, does not hide anything from God. As the creator, he is sovereign over both darkness and light, for he names them and uses them for his purpose. So David says, the good news for us if you're a believer is that the nearness and ever-presentness of God while unsettling to the evil person is a bomb and a reassurance that brings rest to those who have called on and trusted in God's promises. Notice what he says in verse 10. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. The hand imagery used at the end of the first stanza shows back up. David says, even if you've ran, even if you've fleed, guess what's still on you? The hand of God is still on you. Why? Not because you've earned it, not because you're presently displaying a means by which you are worthy of continuing to be cared for. What it means is that God has so desired and determined to love you that there's nowhere you'll go and there's nothing you'll do that will ever take his hand from you. God is there in every moment to lead us and hold us by the hand. The same hands laid on us for blessing and reassurance in the first stanza are here to reiterate the protection of God, both in what we do, meaning where we walk, and when we are threatened by the enemy, when God holds us. Oh, that we would see and appreciate the tender, loving care that God has for us. Oh, that we would grasp the reality that if we belong to God, he is after us. No longer for our condemnation, but for our sanctification and growth in what it means to be a follower of God in the world. David says he knows everything about you. And even if you feel the temptation to run, you can't outrun him. Let that settle in your hearts and minds this morning. God is infinitely for you. He knows everything about you better than you know it about yourself. When David says even the thoughts, the thoughts that you would be terrified for the person next to you to hear this morning, even those thoughts God knows and loves and cares and redeems. Even those words that are not yet formed that we want to say or that we, God knew them before we ever said them. David says, grasp this reality. 
God is for you. God is for you, so you no longer have to reject yourself to feel worthy. You can fall into the loving embrace of the Father. He's there for you. He is everywhere, and he knows everything. And then David moves into Psalm 139, 13 through 18, perhaps the most well-known section of this psalm. It's David's words here. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. In this third six-verse section, David considers the power of God as creator. Not only is God all-knowing and not only is God all-present, but God is all-powerful. The psalm soars to its highest point as the work of God in fashioning each human being, each image-bearer in the womb is detailed. The same hands that are laid on us for blessing and reassurance in verse 5 are the same hands that delicately fashion David and each of us in the womb. God knows all things and is in all places. And even in those places, unknown and invisible to us, like the womb, God is at work. God displays his care not only through our creation, but also through the mapping out of our lives. There has never been a moment from before our parents knew they were going to have us where we have not known the tenderness, care, and power of God at work in our lives. David says, you mapped it out. You saw my frame in the depths and in the darkness where no human fully understands what's happening. You were knitting me together. You were caring for me. And even before I made my crying entrance into the world, David says, all my days were planned. There's such an intricate knowledge that God has of each of us. The days we would live, the places we would go to borrow from Dr. Seuss, the hairs on our head, the tears that we looked at earlier, the, the he counts our tossings and collects our tears. God is intimately aware of us. His power on full display, perhaps nowhere more explicitly than in the human body. Perhaps you've seen the images from the newest telescope that was launched into space that is reaching millions, billions of light years back to bring fresh images of what is beyond our ability to see. That is stunning and beautiful. But I would submit it pales in comparison to even one cell of the human body. It pales in comparison to the intricacies of how our eyes work. It pales in comparison to your heart's ability to continue to pump blood even while you're asleep. It pales in comparison to the hands and the feet that God has given you to be used for advance of his kingdom. All that is out there pales in comparison to the beauty and the wonder and the creative power of God displayed in everyone who's ever walked the earth. Everyone bearing the image of God. Everyone made in his image. Oh, the depth of the complexity and the power of God. 
when we had to do a cell project in ninth grade, I hated that project so much, so much. The only thing I remember is that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. That's all I remember. I would fail science immediately. I didn't appreciate then what I would appreciate now because I hadn't grown to understand the beauty and the complexity of what I was looking at. So often we don't understand and fully appreciate the power and the knowledge and the creativity of God because we don't fully understand it when we see it. But distance from how God has worked and acted in our life, looking back to remember what God has done, all of a sudden opens up a kaleidoscopic view of the beauty and the power and the worth of God. And David goes all the way back to the women and says, there was nobody there. In the depths of the earth, you were knitting me together. Man. The power of God. David then shifts his mode of thinking in the last two verses, 17 and 18. He says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Before this moment, David has primarily considered his thoughts about God. Everything has been David's mind towards understanding who God is and how God operates. Now, David pivots to consider God's thoughts towards him. Again, isn't it stunning that God would think of us? Think about all the stuff you forget in a week. Think about all the stuff you put where you won't forget you put it and still can't find it. Think about how easy it is to forget. And yet God has never forgotten us once. And God thinks of us daily. Intricately and intimately involved in the details of our life. There's so much assurance that's meant to land on our hearts here. No matter how low our self-esteem, no matter how insignificant we may feel we or our life is, God still thinks of us, and this realization should bring us great comfort. David talks of the creative power of God in fashioning him in the womb, and he ties it together here in 17 and 18 by considering God's thoughts towards us. And Derek Kidner in his commentary writes, Even in his own body, there's an unimaginable wealth of detail, every point of it from the mind of God. Such divine knowledge is not only wonderful, but precious, since it carries its own proof of infinite commitment. God will not leave the work of his hands, work of his own hands, either to chance or to ultimate extinction. David says, some of how I understand your thoughts about me is when I consider my own form, my own body, my own being. I'm comforted by the intentionality with which you crafted and created me. There's nothing in you that was a mistake. There's nothing in you that wasn't fashioned and formed by God. And he will not leave his work. Even there, at the end of verse 18, he talks about if I would count the meaning, God's thoughts towards us, they are more than the sand. When was the last time you just sat and allowed yourself to think from Scripture about what God's thoughts about you are? We're always trying to prove our worth to God without ever stopping to consider what he already thinks of us. That says it's too wonderful. Like, you can't count all the ways that God thinks of you. You can't number them. Can you go out and count the sand at Wrightsville Beach? If you can, you can get near but still not arrive at the multitude and the infinite thoughts that God has of you. And then he says this, I awake and I am still with you. 
On the lighter note, that means if you fall asleep praying, God doesn't abandon you because you didn't finish your prayer before you fell asleep. He'll be there with you. But David is hinting at something here through the inspiration of the Spirit. That even when our eyes close in death, if we are in Christ, they will awaken to seeing Jesus face to face. Even the last thing that we don't, we don't understand how we are formed in the womb, and we don't understand what happens as we die. God forms us in the womb. God meets us in death and walks us safely home. The same hands that formed you, the same hands that hem you in before and behind, the same hands that are laid on you for blessing, the same hands that protect you and guide you are the same hands that wait to welcome you home when you close your eyes in this, li in this life and wake up in the next. David says, where would I go? Where would I go? What would I consider? How do I escape? I can't. God is with us. And then David closes the song with these six verses, in starting in 19 through 24. All that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We take a turn here. Now, 19 is a sharp turn. God, how powerful you are, how much you know. You're everywhere. Oh, God, slay the wicked. That's a hard pivot. If you're not ready for it, it will catch you by surprise. But what David does, David closes the psalm by doing what we all must do. He brings the lofty thoughts, the overwhelming knowledge, and the inspired praise of God back to the trenches of everyday life in this world marred and broken by sin where people are more opposed to God in his ways than in love with God in his ways. David says, you're all powerful. You're all knowing. You're everywhere all at once. And then he takes all that and he says, this is good for my heart and my soul, but it has real life implications. This is not just knowing stuff to know stuff. This is not the knowledge that puffs up that Paul talks about in Corinthians. This is knowledge meant to affect how we live every day. David, considering all about God that he has written until now, David so closely identifies with God that God's enemies become David's enemies. The slander of evil men towards God becomes slander that David himself takes personally. Thus, David asks God to slay the wicked. David has so closely identified with God in the first 18 verses that the only thing left to do is to declare his allegiance to God by being opposed to those who are opposed to God. If God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing and following the commands and the laws of God is what leads human life into its truest flourishing because it's living according to the design and the decree of our Creator, then it makes sense that we would stand against those who don't want people to live that way. But how do we stand against them? How do we stand against those who would be opposed to God in his ways. Notice what David does not do. David doesn't say, well, you formed me a sword from 
the realms of heaven so that I can go exact vengeance myself. David prays for God to be zealous for his own name. David identifies with God to say, I want this. I don't, I don't want to see these people continue to prosper. But David leaves the slaying up to God. David doesn't take the burden of slaying on himself. His hands already proverbially dripping with blood. He knows he can get this wrong. And as we talked about last week, when the psalmist write these imprecatory prayers asking God to condemn their enemies, they all did so with an awareness of their own fallibility and impure motives. And so David prays in 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David says, I want to be so identified with you that I can't be identified with those who oppose you. But I need you to search me. Perhaps the same searching in verse 1 that would be a cause for pause and hesitation, David now welcomes in his life. David now welcomes the searching out of God for impure motives and offensive ways. David says, here I am. If you're going to start eliminating your enemies, the first thing David says I want you to do in me, God, is make sure I'm not one. When the strong arm of God goes out in deliverance, the first enemies to fall are those closest to him. David says, don't let that be me. Don't let that be me. And so as we think how to engage the world we live in, as we think about how to engage our neighbors and our coworkers and friends of our families that don't know Jesus, we ask God to be just in the final summation of things. We ask God to defend his name. We don't take it upon ourselves to be the ones who slay the enemy. We bear witness to a God who redeems his enemies, of which we all were at one point. We ask God to search us. We ask God to know us so that we would give testimony to the glory and the power and the all-knowingness of God that would move first towards redemption and then towards judgment. We bear witness to God's grace in our life. David asked God to lead him in a manner of life filled with worship and obedience as the, that is the exact opposite of the enemies of God mentioned in verses 19 through 22. And perhaps here in the final two verses of the psalm, we find the point of inflection for our own lives. Have we so closely identified ourselves with God and his ways that we desire to live a life opposite of how the world lives and operates? Read that again. Have we so closely identified ourselves with God and his ways that we desire to live a life opposite of how the world lives and operates? That's what David asked for. Set me apart. It's going to look different. It's going to be costly, but I want to display the truth of who you are in my worship and in my obedience. The question for us is, are we willing to take on the cost? 
Because the temptation that was there for Jesus in the garden to bypass the suffering as a means to gain glory remains there for us. Will we bypass the suffering to try to attain glory in some other way? Or will we know and understand and follow the call of our Savior who says, take up your cross. Don't take up your crown. Your crown's not yours to take up. It's mine to give. Take up your cross and follow me. David's praying it before Jesus ever utters it, inspired by the Spirit. Take up my cross and follow God. Will we allow our power, our priorities, and our preferences to be upended for the sake of the kingdom and its advance? We're not just giving it up for giving up sake. We're giving it up to see the kingdom of God advance. But we cannot fall prey to the lie that the kingdom of God looks anything like the kingdom of this world. It is wholly different. And our lives will look wholly different. James, the half-brother of Jesus, reminds us bluntly and plainly in his letter in the New Testament. Chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. David says, if you consider all of it, if you take the fullness of my psalm into consideration, and you know and you trust in the God I've written about, then your prayer should be for a life that honors and glorifies him. He's pursuing you for that purpose. He's not pursuing you to trip you in front of your friends and make them all laugh at you while he joins in. He's pursuing you to sanctify you, to grow you, to mold you into one who would display something of the character of Jesus in your life every day. But in order to do that, we have to reject self-rejection. And we have to allow our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear God call us beloved. Because he calls us beloved before we ever do any of this. Beloved is not something we earn. It is something God in his grace gives. And when we accept it, when we know it, when we embrace it, then the cost of following Jesus begins to pale in comparison. It's real. It's not an imaginary thing. It's a real cost. But the cost is counted and the cost is considered worth it because we've already been called beloved. There's a second part to this. When we are aware and know deep in our souls the truth of what David has written in Psalm 139, what is our proper response outside of worship and obedience and a desire to follow God, even if it looks and will look different than the world? But we have a second response. It's not to sit on such great news. It is to model the truth of the great news of being welcomed and redeemed by God. It is to model the truth of the great news of being welcomed and redeemed by God, by ourselves being welcoming to others and sharing the good news of the gospel with them. Psalm 139 invites us not only to think great thoughts of God and live in obedience to him, it also invites us to tell everyone else, you're not a mistake. You're not an accident. The same God who formed me formed you. And he offers the same gift of eternal life in Jesus. He knows you perfectly, has full power to do with you what he wills, and he chose to offer his son in your place. 
We open our lives to welcoming in the stranger, to welcoming in the enemy, because that's what God has done for us. And we do so from a place of rest, because we're not trying to earn their approval or the approval of the people we go to church with. We're responding to the fact that we have been called beloved. And if you've heard and known what it means to be called beloved, then the heartbeat you should have is for everyone you know to have the chance to hear that they too are beloved. Stephen Rhodes writes in his book, Where the Nations Meet, hospitality, when you get right down to it, is unnatural. It is difficult to place others first because our inclination is to take care of ourselves first. Hospitality takes courage. It is a willingness to risk. But as our Lord reminds us, if we only love those who we are sure will love us and welcome those who will welcome us, then we have done little to share the love of God. For as Jesus says, even the heathen do that. You see, most of us know what true hospitality feels like. It means being received openly, warmly, freely, without any need to prove ourselves. Hospitality makes us feel worthy because our host assumes we are worthy. This is the kind of hospitality that we have experienced from God. And all that God asks is that we go and do likewise, particularly to the alien among us. God is asking you to be hospitable with the good news. Because you've known what it is to be welcomed without any need to prove yourself. And you know what it is to feel worthy because God has said you're worthy. But people need to hear the truth. Wrapped up in Psalm 139 and throughout the scriptures. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is everywhere. But he's pursuing people to redeem. He's pursuing people to welcome. The biggest thing your lost coworker or family member or neighbor needs to hear is this, is that they can lay down self-rejection. And be embraced in the, accept, in the acceptance of the Savior. The truth of Psalm 139 not only brings great comfort to our hearts, but it should bring great urgency to our lives. We want to be a church who are of the all-powerful and all-knowing God who has redeemed us, swing wide the doors of our hearts, our homes, and our churches to welcome others to enjoy the rest that comes from being fully known, fully loved, fully redeemed, and fully preserved to the end by God. Let's pray.